Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. If there was ever a person that seemed suited for the life of an armchair philosopher, it would seem to be Descartes. He was so suspicious of human senses and observation, he liked the clean mathematical reasoning of deduction. So who would have thought he'd be such an adventurer? Time to Eat the Dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Hal Cook talks about the travels and trials of the young Descartes, a man who spent as much time traveling and fighting as he did thinking deep thoughts. Cook is the John F. Nichol Professor of History at Brown University. He's the author of The Young Descartes, Nobility, Rumor, and War, which is just out this year with Chicago University Press. Hal Cook, thanks for talking with me today. Pleasure to do so. So, I know that this is kind of an unfair question, but I was wondering if you could summarize Descartes, uh, at least give us a kind of highlight reel of his most important work as a philosopher. Well, he's obviously a famous person because of his writing, which is in the philosophical genre. And that work was published from the later 1630s onward, and some of it published after his death in 1650. He's known to later generations probably best for advocating, well, several things. One would be corpuscularianism, which is a version of uh, matter theory in terms of how the world is composed. It's a kind of uh, kind of this idea of a, a giant clockwork, right? A, the mechanical philosophy is that. So, so that's it, it's the matter theory that goes into that version of how people understand him to be arguing, and so he has, for instance. So it, it's it's uh, it's a bit mm, like a fluid. And so one of his metaphors is that when things move through this fluid, it's kind of like a fish moving through water. Uh And the other thing he's known for, and this is maybe much more common to the way people think of Descartes, is dualism. That is that mind and body are distinct substances, and we as humans then are made up of mind and body, which 
interact, but in some mysterious way, which we can't map out. And so the relationship between mind and body remains mysterious, but that also for many people frees mind to think of great things or to contemplate uh, God and otherwise to avoid bodily entanglements with the, with the world and uh, think about more important things. When I was in graduate school, I know that we got a heavy dose of Descartes as a, a theorist of methods. How do you know the truth? Epistemology, I guess, is the technical word, right? That, that would also be the other uh, leg of the stool. Right. And that is related to people thinking of him as basing his methods on mathematics, and uh, the method being what people usually refer to as deduction, which is the analogy is with Euclid, where you start off with a few premises, you have some rules of reasoning, you can get from axioms and premises to proofs, and move on from each step of proof to, to certain knowledge that's certain. So uh, one of the things I liked about your book, it was, uh, a very, it was very interesting to me, I didn't, I didn't know any of this, that you were talking about, you know, when Descartes dies, he's got all of these papers. Um, he's been a correspondent. He knows thousands of people. I mean, he's moved all through Europe. And yet you write that, like, the documents of his life, his letters and his works, kind of slowly disappear in these interesting ways. And that we end up with a kind of life of or body of work that's been expunged of the biographical detail. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think the main way that Descartes has come down to us over the generations is as somebody who is far removed from, let's call it ordinary social conversation, that the idea is he, he goes to the Netherlands to write his philosophy in order to escape the social entanglements of Paris. And then when so much of his manuscript material disappears over the years after the first biographies are written, much material about Descartes is recovered, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, and published. But it's already supporting a view that Descartes wants to be separate from humankind and that he's, he's a distant, uh, abstract uh, figure who's not really interested in people, but interested in the, the way that the universe is composed. Well, you had just mentioned that he's, he's kind of famous for this idea of dualism, this, uh, this separation between mind and body. And, um, and then you start describing this parallel with the way he's remembered. And you have this great line from your book. It says, uh, Descartes says that human beings is, exist as mind and body united. If we put his mind back into his body and his body in the midst of his world, whom would we find? I just thought that was a terrific uh, expression of that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, so I began to come across Descartes when I was working on history of science and medicine in the Netherlands. And certainly for medical people in the Netherlands, Cartesianism uh, was a phenomenon that they were all grappling with, whether pro or con or in between. And so... I began looking into him and thinking, well, what's what's he doing here in the Netherlands for 20 years when all of his friends are back in Paris and he loves Paris? So why is he in the Netherlands? And then seeing he's entangled in all kinds of controversies and so on. And, and so the more I looked into his life, the more I began to puzzle about the usual story, which is that he's there just to do thinking and that he's 
yeah, far removed from any real connections with the world. He's, he's turns out to be very worldly, and that also fit with what I was finding, and that's that his last work published during his lifetime is on the passions. Huh. His passions for me then became a way of entering the problems that he was grappling with in some new ways, rather than starting with something like his geometry. Yeah, the other interesting metaphor that you use in your book is that of um, of climbing a mountain, that Descartes is in many ways this intellectual summit, and and that this this view from the mountaintop is where we all we all try to get in studying um, Cartesian philosophy. Uh, but but you were saying that it's it's not as easy as that. You try to complicate the metaphor. I'm wondering if you could actually complicate it for us. Sure, thanks. Uh, well, one of the one of the ways I try to do that is to just note that when you're on top of a mountain, you can see very far, and that's what most people try to do when they're thinking about mountaintops is to get the long distance view. But if you're thinking about the person who uh, gets to the mountaintop, if we can put it that way, they climb up there. So I began to think of this metaphor as more like when he's a guide for himself, first climbing to the top and down again, but uh, he's he's a guide to show other people the way up and down of this mountain. But the, the mountain is not constructed from his own philosophy, but from all the problems that he recognizes from his education and other conversations in his world. And so if you think of him climbing up and down, then you start thinking of the mountaintop not separate as a point of view, but as something built on lower structures. And if you start thinking about the foothills, people move around there more easily. It's a lot more complicated. There's more people down there. There's more animals. There's more cities. And if the mountain is rooted in the valleys, then what's going on down there is is really where he lives his life. And these are these uh, valleys and, and hills. These are uh, to kind of um, extend the metaphor. These are the the contingencies of of his life, right? As he moves through them, the people that he meets. Is is that how you think we should interpret it? That's right. I came to think of. His life is full of accidents, as one of his early biographers puts it, that things happen to him that he didn't intend, like they happened to all of us, that he didn't plan it out in the way that it moved. Uh, he was always uh, moving in a world of contingency where he had to just deal with whatever was coming his way as best he could. So here's a, here's a question for you. How do you show that contingent life, knowing that it ends up on top of a mountain. And I guess this is in a way a, a question you could ask of, of any biographer, really, um, when in a sense you, you do have an end point or a kind of a final place you get to. I mean, did that affect the way you wrote the book? It did in, in the sense that I don't, I don't think he ends up on the mountaintop. I think maybe if we use that metaphor, when he's writing his philosophy, there are moments when he's putting his mind up at the top of the mountain. But he lives somewhere else. You don't live on mountaintops. Yeah. The other thing just is in terms of the teleology, he dies in Stockholm. And when he dies, uh, there start to be rumors that maybe he was poisoned or maybe he faked his death and ran off to live with the so-called laps. They're now known as 
Sami people. They were supposed to be uh, the greatest magicians in Europe. And so there's all these other parts of his reputation that aren't about living on a mountaintop that cling to him even at his death. Yeah. It seems to me that there's a lot more to him and what he was what he was grappling with than simply trying to, to come up with a few simple philosophical principles. You know, in my um, very stock lecture on on Descartes, I start with this talking about this this issue of um, the uncertainties of his world and the way that I have been teaching it, now I realize I've been teaching it wrongly, <laughs> is that to me, it seemed like these uncertainties were really kind of big level things like the Protestant Reformation is shaking people's faith in, you know, can we find truth through the church? Or, you know, in all of the voyages of discovery, which are bringing back information about new species and new geography around the world. And that it's in that, you know, global context that Descartes starts thinking about what what is certain. And one of the things I really like about your book, very new for me to read, is that, no, this uncertainty is really personal. I mean, he lives a really precarious life. So I was just wondering if you could talk about um, what's so scary about Descartes' life as a young man. Sure. Well, I I do think that uh, the world is full of uncertainties most of the time. And Uh, It certainly was for him and in his time. And I don't object to anybody like yourself teaching courses that require generalizations like voyages of discovery or or international commerce or Protestant Reformation, Catholic Counter-Reformation, however one wants to talk about those things. We need to generalize sometimes. But one of the things that's come to interest me about Descartes' philosophy is that he's trying to get rid of the abstractions and get down to the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's coming from his life, which is full of contingency. And one of the great episodes of his life, I think now, was when he was in Paris as a, a young man. He was, he was He's an aristocrat. He's looking for pat- patronage. He is reputed to be very good with his sword. He loves poetry. He's got lots of friends who enjoy his company and he enjoys their company and but he's looking for patronage to work for one of the great nobles probably because he was a virtual orphan his mother died when he was young his father remarried had a different family so he's in his late teens living in paris looking for social and personal advancement and then comes this very bloody coup d'etat in uh-huh. which the young king seizes power from his mother, Marie de Medici. This is uh, Louis Trez. Yes. Becomes Louis XIII. And uh, Louis and his boyfriends basically murder his mother's lover, who is her chief minister as well. And Quite quite brutally, right? I mean, this is yeah. where he... Yeah. yeah. And, and But that's that's the world in which he's living, is he can wake up one day and find out that the guy who was running the country had just been murdered by the king's guard, by the king's own guard. And it must have it must have shocked anybody. Anyway, within a few days, Marie de Medici is fleeing Paris, and that's just when he leaves Paris too and goes to the Netherlands for the first time. Uh-huh. So I think that's just an example of the kinds of contingencies in his life. Things he, he thinks things are going just fine, and all of a sudden something completely outside of his control just crashes into his world and sends him spiraling off in a different direction. 
You talk a lot about, well, so much of the day-to-day routines are difficult to get at with Descartes, but you kind of create this um, broader picture of of his world, his kind of uh, social network, I guess. And that social network is so interesting because it's so diverse. I mean, you have Catholics, you have Huguenots, you have... um, libertines um, who are not just, you know, interested in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? That's a kind of free-thinking philosophy. And so it's a very interesting set of people that he's exposed to. Do you do you know how that influenced him? So uh, because I'm dealing with the young Descartes, I don't have to, in this book, try to specify exactly how particular ideas or particular people might have influenced him, to use that word influence. But what I... Uh, think is interesting about his life as a young person is all these connections that you just mentioned. And it's a world of uh, really enormously violent intellectual clashes as well as personal clashes. And there are a lot of different positions around. And you mentioned the Epicureans and the Libertines, and they are interested in what we would call sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but they're also interested in free thinking. Some of them get executed because of the views that they're propounding. So it, that's a very interesting group. But some of the people inside the church that he ends up knowing very well are also interested in a kind of charismatic religion so that they don't, they're, they're Catholics, of course, some of them even uh, bishops and archbishops and even cardinals. So some of them are senior people, but they're interested in a religion that speaks to the heart. Uh Let's call it a theological dogma. So he's got all kinds of people around him where I think that for me, the bottom line is for his, let's call it the the growth of his thought from all these clashes is that there's something in human intuition in the heart that is speaking to him. So he's known as a rationalist, but his work on the passions again, for me, is really critical for cluing me into the many things that he's grappling with and how something like uh, being moved by a spirit is perfectly okay with him as long as you don't try to abstract that into some yeah. dogma. I, uh, I did find a number of kind of uh, images of, of Descartes really interesting and counterintuitive to the way I thought about him. One of them is... You know, there's this story of these visions or dreams that Descartes has in, I guess it was 1619, um, when these kinds of ideas about analytical philosophy and, you know, the mathematical inspiration for philosophy kind of come to him. And on the surface, I was thinking, yeah, that's like totally consistent with thinking of Descartes as a kind of armchair philosopher. He's locked in a room somewhere. He's not doing experiments. He's just sitting there. And then it kind of all comes to him in a flash. But then you actually kind of complicate this story as well. You provide a lot of context for these visions and talk a lot about Descartes' anxiety. Could you could you talk about that? Sure. Well, it, it's uh, occurring, as best we know, in the winter after you first enters Germany, and when the war that will be known uh, to historians as the Thirty Years' War, a long and brutal conflict, is just beginning to get underway, and armies are massing, and he has been signed up, signed himself up for 
the Duke of Bavaria's forces, and the Duke of Bavaria is going to lead the Catholic forces on behalf of the emperor. So armies are being collected. He has just come from the Netherlands where he got trained as a military engineer, and I think that he's working on behalf of the Duke to help uh, bring an army together that needs expertise like his. Uh-huh. So in the middle of this winter, he, he says he's there's a very cold day and he has a, a day to himself and he has these dreams. But I think he's he's in a strange place. Uh, he, he would be suffering from what we would today call culture shock. The events going on around him are quite life-threatening as well as undermining his moral compass. And so I, I think the dreams really show the anxiety of the moment. Do you think, I know this is kind of maybe just asking you to speculate, but given how dangerous his life was for so long, the fact that he was essentially orphaned, his father was often on the other side of the political spectrum from where he was, that he was in the military and traveling to these places, that maybe this kind of heavy-duty uh, focus on deductive reasoning was a kind of refuge for him? It could be. I, I think that one of the things he definitely is trying to do is to find out what you can be certain about. So his, his famous proof, Kogoto Ergo Sum, is a way of saying, at least we know that we exist. We can't doubt our mm-hmm. existence. And that's a, a way of arguing that the turtles don't go all the way down. They stop at some point. And they stop at, at the fact that we live in a real world. We are here. And then he tries to build from there. So I, I think that he is uh, at least uh, looking for that kind of certainty. On many other questions, though, uh, the lesson he draws from the dreams, if we believe what he writes about his dreams, is that the poets are right. Hmm. He had lots and lots of friends who are important and interesting literary figures. So it's not as though he's somebody who is looking for the kind of mathematical certainty that is different from the real world understandings that we all absorb in living through real life, Uh but that he's trying to assuage doubts. But yes, I think that that very deep, serious doubt was a kind of threat for him. Another thing I found uh, surprising was I had always thought that Descartes' love of mathematics came from his work uh, as a essentially his experience as a, as a student at La Flèche uh, as a young boy, I guess. And you say that it's really his, you know, when he is out traveling as a part of an army, learning the art of war and learning all of the mathematics of warfare that he experiences it and goes so far as to even praise practical mathematics or applied mathematics as as a way to learn it? Right. So he would have been trained in mathematics as a student, and he must have been very able in mathematics, uh, at least to the extent of not fearing it, maybe even enjoying it. But there's no evidence that he went very deeply into mathematics as a student. But he's a very capable mathematician later in life, of course. And I think that the important connection is when he goes off to the Low Countries for the first time in 1618, roughly, 
where he is apparently studying military engineering. And that's where he gets used to all kinds of mathematical manipulations. And he also acquires skill with mathematical instruments. So it turns Mm -hmm. out that a lot of his mathematics is what we might call empirical mathematics, that he's using instruments and other things to manipulate a world in three dimensions through mathematical calculations. Mm -hmm. And that's what military engineers did. So yes, I think that after that, he becomes playful with mathematics. It's, he's, he's comfortable with it. And, but it's coming through that exercise that he has with mathematical instruments. And I guess maybe he would need to be that comfortable with it to both be doing kind of cutting-edge math, right, but also use math as a, a metaphor of sorts for how we, how we should be doing philosophy. Right. But I continue to think that the mathematical methods for him end up being, let's call it techniques, or they are methods. His his goals remain to understand the real world that he experienced. His, that's why his last book is on the passions. Uh-huh. He's really interested in other human beings as well as in nature and what makes nature what it is. And mathematics is an important tool in that, but mathematics is not the end all for his thinking. And I, I get the impression also from a line in your book that I can't remember the exact uh, framing of it, but you said something like, you know, with all of these other avenues shut off, uh, Descartes pursued philosophy. It was almost as if um, as his life as a as nobility starts to fall apart, this was a kind of plan B for him, not not his life's work. Yeah, and I don't mean by that to say that he wasn't interested in how the world works, let's let's say, in, in that kind of philosophy. He clearly was, and he was very well educated. But I don't think there's any sign that he set out to be a philosopher. And he only turns to writing philosophy late in life. When he's, I think he's in exile in the Netherlands for the last 20 years of his life. He's got political problems with Richelieu. And I think the best evidence for that is from looking at what's happening to his good friend, Guise de Balzac, who's one of these literary figures who is exiled to the French countryside just at the moment that Descartes goes to the the Netherlands for the second time. What he's doing there in the first few years in the Netherlands is unclear, but he's clearly thinking about uh, philosophy, as we would call it, or science or understanding the world. He's studying chemistry and anatomy at that point. Mm -hmm. Then he never really re-enters France. And so I think he ends up doing this philosophy when he's in exile. But the idea that this is what he aimed for from the beginning of his life is, uh, I think, yeah, impossible to support. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview that uh, your work on Descartes was inspired by some earlier projects that you were working on. And and I was thinking that you you actually have a pretty diverse approach to subjects. I mean, you have your most recent book was a kind of institutional history, right? Matters of Exchange, which which looks at uh, commerce in the Dutch Golden Age and how it connects or lays a foundation for science. But then you also have more biographical works like Trials of an Ordinary Doctor about Johannes Groenveld, if I'm saying that correctly. And so how would you fit this book about young Descartes, you know, with, within that body of, of work? For me, I have come to doubt some of the stories about historical causes and even historical frameworks that I grew up with. So I think that 
seeing how people in the past coped with the problems of their lives and often wanted to do something with them that we would call scientific or intellectual or whatever it may be, that people have goals and ambitions and, and uh, interests and hopes and fears. All of that, I think, helps to explain why they end up doing what they're doing, as well as the opportunities and barriers that come their way. So, so I, I think I've tried to grapple with those things in, in some of the other things I've written, but Descartes has always been this figure on a mountaintop. And I, I thought, well, that just can't be given everything else that I've learned. It seems to me that when I was in graduate school, biography was always looked at with some suspicion. I mean, it's such a popular genre. People love reading biography. I mean, I love I love reading biography, but there was always a sense of suspicion about it, almost as if you're if you're going to talk about the person and person's personal experiences that somehow you're going to lose track of the social and the cultural and then you're going to have this really skewed picture of a person and how they work in their own lives and so so how do you how do you i guess balance that well i i think it's true that uh, any one of us looking out from our own little egotistical corner of the universe sees that we're living within all kinds of other frames and forces that that run through our lives in, in ways that we don't fully comprehend. And so I think that the historian's job of trying to understand those larger forces and, and, and larger uh, streams in the current that's carrying us along, that that's right and proper. And, and that's what I'm trying to do too. But I think I, I learned a lot from micro history so that the, the, the story of the individuals for me can become a microcosm, but they they don't understand everything themselves. When we try to put them into the world in which they live lived as historians, we can see some things that they might not have been able to see. And so I think the historian's challenge is to try to build up the bigger picture, but my own sense is that it's best to work from the ground up, you might say, rather than from abstract principles like reformation and work downward. Yeah. Hal Cook, thank you very much. This has been really great. This has been a real pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much, Michael. That's it for today. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website and Twitter page for links and other exploration-related stuff. The Twitter page also has a link to Zabrat, the great Canadian band that composed the music you're hearing now. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make it easier for new listeners to find us. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.